Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Inigo Mujica. Inigo is one of the most highly respected coaches and lecturers in sports science. He earned PhDs in biology of muscular exercise and physical activity in sports sciences, before serving as the senior physiologist at the Australian Institute of Sport, physiologist and trainer for the Escotel Escadi cycling team, and head of research and development for Athletic Club Bilbao football team. He is now the director of physiology and training at USP Araba Sport Clinic, associate editor of the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, and Associate Professor at the University of the Basque Country. Well, let's go ahead and start out with uh, an origin story. So tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into sports in the first place and uh, what you love most about sports and kind of what led you to where you're at today. Well, I was um, originally a swimmer, a regional level swimmer, not very good. I also played a, a bit of water polo. Uh, but uh, my family has always been involved in sports. So my brothers and sisters were swimmers. Uh, we went hiking on, on the weekends. So we, we were always into, into sports. And when I decided what to study uh, in, in university, it had to be physical education and sports science. And once I got into that, one of my, one of my lecturers in university was a, a, a legendary sports medicine doctor, physiologist, and personal trainer to a couple of uh, Basque athletes who are who are legends, like five-time winner of the Tour de France, Miguel Indurain, and world marathon champion, Martin Fitz. And that was basically my inspiration to continue on in his, uh, in his path. And uh, I asked him for advice to become a, a sports physiologist myself. So he recommended me to go to France and do my PhD over there with the people he had done his own PhD. And that's where it all started. But uh, basically, it's a big passion about sports. And considering that I was not a great athlete myself, a great competitive athlete myself, um, I always aimed to help other athletes to, to become the best they could become. No, I love that about you. Um, and anyone I've heard speak your name always said he's he's always willing to help. He's always willing to serve. Is that something that you've tried to continue throughout your career? Yes, absolutely. Uh, when when I present on on my background and the and the contribution of uh, sports science and sports physiology in particular to sports performance, 
I use a series of, uh, of photos and dedications from some of the athletes I've been involved with. And the, the, the word that I always highlight from those dedications is help. Like, thank you for your help in achieving my dreams. Uh, thank you for helping me uh, be the best I could be, etc. So I think what athletes appreciate the most about my contribution in particular is my willingness to help them achieve what they want to achieve and what once was simply a dream for them, uh, make it become a goal in their, in their athletic life. So that's always been my, my target as a sports physiologist, being there for the athletes, being there for the coaches and try to help them achieve their goals. What I love about that is a lot of athletes will mention that, um, you know, coaches are usually good at one thing or another, you know, they're really good with the technical aspects or they're really good with the emotional side. And it sounds like you've really married those together and uh, really helped the athlete with their psychology as much as, you know, maybe their physiology. There is one point about my background that um, my stand out a little bit is that yes i have two phds in, in in sports science one in biology of muscular exercise in france and the other one in uh, physical education and sports sciences in the basque country but i am also a level three swimming coach and a level three triathlon coach and i have coached elite athletes myself uh, some of them have been world champion they've been european champion they've won uh, medals at the European Championships. They've been at the Olympics uh, six times overall. So I I kind of see both sides of the of the coin. You know, I understand what coaches want. I understand what um, athletes want, and so I try not to impose my views as a sports scientist uh, because I know what is needed also as a coach. So maybe that is one of the one of the reasons why I, I tend to empathize uh, better with athletes and coaches than some other sports scientists. No, I love that. Um, you mentioned having a very strong and obviously very celebrated mentor. Um, what is a key lesson that he taught you maybe about life, not even about sports physiology or exercise physiology that you still hold on to that lesson or that principle today? Well, I, I never thought about that key lesson, but uh, it might have been his passion. When he was teaching in university, you could see his passion for, uh, for sports physiology uh, when he was lecturing. And also his applied side. Uh, yes, he was lecturing in, in university, but at the same time, he was working with professional athletes. He was caring about professional athletes and, and also honesty. Um, he's been in the elite sports for many, many years. And I was just his student, but today, and I'm talking 25 years later or almost 30 years later, we're still friends. 
So we go out to lunch every now and then and, 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 and we chat about uh, sports and we chat about his uh, position in, in professional life, his position in, in his personal life, my own situation professionally and personally. So I think we both try to keep honest and, and I think this long-term friendship uh, is simply a reflection of that uh, honesty from our side. I love that. Um, and I know that you like to, to mentor younger coaches and develop them and, uh, you know, kind of do as your mentor did to you to pour back into others. Why are you so passionate about helping other coaches in the community? Well, I like lecturing and I like uh, sharing ideas rather than just get there uh, throw your lecture and, and go away. I like also to hear what the audience has to say. So I, I'm invited to do a lot of um, lectures in an awful lot, hundreds, yeah, and, and, and congresses. But I always try to listen to what the audience uh, has to say, and and I value a lot the Q and A session after my presentation because uh, quite often it is. Uh, and, and even the audience might perceive as if I am the one teaching and I'm the only one teaching something. But uh, I think it goes in both directions. And, and I learn a lot when I lecture because uh, sometimes the questions that uh, get thrown at you uh, make you reflect on what you have been just talking about and, and you learn. And sometimes you hear stories from the audience that you never thought about. So you learn from that as well. So I think that uh, bi-directional exchange of information that you get at conferences and congresses and, and, uh, and lectures is very, um, it's very satisfying for, for the audience and, and also for myself. Absolutely. Um, to rewind a little bit. So you, like me, I came to America and, you know, played college basketball. And then because at that time, if you could kick a ball from here to the wall and were foreign, you got soccer money as well. So, you know, how that, it's a bit more selective these days, 20 years on. But so um, you, you go to Saint-Étienne in France. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that experience as a student and then maybe connect the dots from, from where you went after there, both geographically and professionally? Well, before I go to Saint-Étienne, I will tell you that I was an exchange student in California when I was 17. Mm. And of course, coming from Europe, I was the kicker of the, foot, of the football yes. team. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, when I went to Saint-Étienne, it was a, a very interesting experience because, uh, first of all, I could not um, be a failure because I had been recommended by, by this mentor of mine. And secondly, I expected to have a grant and have a, you know, an easy, kind of easy student life. But because I was so involved in elite performance, I, I did my PhD on elite swimmers from France. I could not get a, a grant in France because the French authorities always thought, well, why should we uh, give any finance to this foreigner who is then going to go away and apply what he has learned in France elsewhere. He will become competition. So financially, it was a very tough experience. So I, I, needed, to, I needed to finish my PhD as fast as possible because I was struggling financially. 
And, and that made me very productive. Uh, at that time, uh, the requirement in my department to get a PhD was to have two or three uh, scientific papers published. But uh, I was in such a, I won't say a hurry, but I, I needed to be very productive and finish quickly so that I could hopefully uh, finish struggling financially. And, and I ended up having a PhD that, that gave uh, eight scientific papers. So I could say that uh, the scientific production was inversely proportional with income at the time of, uh, of uh, being a PhD student. No, that's all but, right. I, but despite that, uh, I learned a lot from all the professors that uh, lectured during the PhD program. I learned a lot from my PhD supervisor who was very much into understanding the physiological demands of elite sports. And I also learned a lot from the coaches that uh, I work with. In fact, there were two coaches who were extremely open-minded. They allowed me to do what I needed to do to get my PhD because they were genuinely convinced that that would uh, provide them with a competitive advantage. They were convinced that the outcome of my own research was going to be beneficial for the performance of their swimmers. And it was the case. It was the case for a few years. They were very, very successful uh, at the main competitions of the, of the season. And that was one of my areas of study, the, the effects of tapering on performance and mathematical modeling to individualize the taper for each particular athlete and try to achieve a peak performance at the right time for each individual athlete. And for several years, they achieved that every single major competition. So I learned from my professors. I learned from my colleagues, the, the, the fellow students who were doing the PhD at the same time as me. And I also learned a lot from the coaches and how open-minded they were towards um, applied sports science. And that, that probably is another reason why um, I always try to be very open-minded and I always try to be sympathetic towards how coaches feel about open science and about the uh, sports science, sorry and about the potential contributions that we can make and the limits also of our own contribution of, as uh, sports scientists. I love that. So you finish up at Saint-Étienne and then what was the next stop for you professionally? Uh, the next stop was coming back to the Basque Country and I started lecturing at the, at the Faculty of Physical Education and Sports Science, but I didn't have a, a position of my own. I was uh, simply covering for someone who had left you know, on a sabbatical. And simultaneously, I kept writing uh, data, writing up papers from the data that I had collected during my PhD. And I went back to collaborating with my mentor who recommended me to go to, to France, who at the time was the, um, the head medical doctor and, and head of training at Banesto Professional Cycling Team. So I was in the background analyzing data and, and doing research, 
that we published towards the end of the 90s and at the beginning of the 2000s. Um, I had to do a second PhD, not because I wanted to do a second PhD, but simply because it was going to be quicker to do a second thesis than to validate my French PhD in Spain. Mm. At the time, uh, the European Union was not what it is today. So doing a, a doctorate in France was not automatically recognized in Spain and vice versa. So it was gonna take years before my uh, French PhD would be recognized in Spain. So I thought, well, I cannot wait for so long. I, I will collect the data and I will write up another thesis. And that's, that's the only reason why I, I have two PhDs because uh, you know, I, I could do it in three years instead of six. Yeah. I, I use the acronym PhD with athletes sometimes in terms of, uh, you know, the importance of being passionate, hungry, and disciplined. So uh, you definitely had to be to earn two PhDs. Um, real quick, I, I, I saw a tweet of yours that said, uh, and I really like it, it says, uh, high performance sport is sexy and attractive, but it's not for everyone. It implies many, many disappointments and frustrations and that's not easy to cope with. And, and that's so true. Uh, you know, the public sees the glitter, but they don't see all the grunt work behind the scenes. Uh, tell us a little bit more about, you know, the tweet and what you had in mind and, and maybe how you help athletes cope with the demands of high level sport. Hmm. Uh, well, the, the tweet was not um, uh, induced by something that happened in particular. It was just a reflection about uh, all these years in elite sports, uh, and as you said, people see the uh, the medals and the and the and the happy moments, but they don't see what's behind, and they don't see all the athletes that put in as much work as the one who won and who got the spotlight, but never got there. Um, you know, I, I have the for, for ten years I coached two brothers in triathlon. And one of them was always extremely successful. He was three times world champion in Xterra triathlon. Uh, he has won half a dozen uh, Ironman events. He was second in Kona. He was fifth in Kona. He had been to the Olympics twice. And his brother was physiologically as good as him, but he was never as successful in competition. I used to sadly think that he was the world champion of training, but unfortunately he was never the world champion of, of competing. And, and that is a pity, you know, his brother made a living for much longer out of triathlon. In fact, he was competing a, a, until last year at the age of 44. And, and two years ago at the age of 43, he uh, did an Ironman and won an Ironman in under eight hours. So he had a very, very extended uh, career in triathlon, whereas his brother stopped in 2010 because he, he was never as successful and he had to find a different path in, in his life. Or for, for many years, I've worked with a, with a female athlete, not as a coach, but as a, a sports physiologist who became... Olympic champion in Rio. She had two silver medals in London, uh, a gold and a bronze in Rio. But in her training group, she was not alone. She was surrounded by a group of swimmers that went and came and, and, 
but the change, the group itself changed, but the group always had six to 10 swimmers who were never as successful as she was, but who trained as much as she did for periods of time. Maybe they were not as consistent as she was for a long duration of time, but for some solid periods of time, they put in as much work as she did. And sometimes they couldn't even qualify for the Olympics, despite all that work, despite all that effort. So yes, we see her winning her medals, but people who are not into elite sports, they are, they are only spectators of elite sports, they don't see everyone else because sometimes they don't even qualify to the Olympics. So they don't even know that they are there and that they are doing the same amount of work because they don't see them at the games. And, and all they watch is the Olympic games. They don't watch the smaller competitions. So there is a lot of failure involved in, in elite sports if you only focus on competition. On the other hand, if you put the focus on the effort, on the process, on the lessons that you can learn from all that hard work, even if the performance outcome is not ideal, um, there is a lot of frustration too. But I think you can always learn something from all of that. And most of the athletes that have been doing all that work for years and all that effort for years, even if they haven't achieved their uh, Olympic goals or their, sometimes they are not real goals, they are simply dreams because they, you know, they, they, they know they cannot be the best in the world. Uh, I think the lessons they learned and, and the entire process is so rich in experiences and so rich in, in relationships that it contributes a lot to their life uh, after a sport. So it's never a real failure, but uh, it is uh, a lot of moments of frustrations, I would say. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, the, the idea is to live a gold medal life whether or not you win a gold medal. Um, and if you're not enjoying the journey, you're probably not gonna enjoy the destination. So within all those hardships, I like that you said, you know, there's all these lessons and rich experiences that make it worthwhile. Yes, I totally agree with that approach. And, and we try to emphasize that with the, with the swimmers. Uh, we, we tell them, we all know that not all of you are going to be Olympic champions, but, we want you to be the best you can be and to fight for it and to work for it and to be ready to pay the price uh, and do what it takes to be the best you can be. Then we will see how far that takes you. But enjoy the journey uh, or try to enjoy the journey, which is sometimes going to be a very, very tough and demanding journey, but try to be there on a day-to-day -day basis and, 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 and you will learn from it and you will get something out of it. So I, I have another very good friend who is uh, the coach of the, of the gold medal winner in triathlon in, in Rio 2016. And he usually says, I don't accept when athletes talk about making sacrifices. It's not a sacrifice, it's a choice. 
the, so he always insists that they should talk about making investments, not making sacrifices. I am investing into an elite triathlete's lifestyle. That will pay off in terms of performance, or it will pay off in some other way. Uh, I will become involved in the sport as a coach, or I will become in the sport as an event organizer, or I will learn lessons for life that will allow me to be consistent, to, to work hard for my goals, to work hard for my, for my dreams, and, and you know, to, to, to pay the price that it takes to achieve something in life. So talk about investments instead of talking about sacrifices because it's a choice. It would be a sacrifice if you force them to do something, but it's something that they have decided to do. It's something that, that um, they do because they want to. You know, nobody, nobody forces anyone to try to become Olympic champion. They decide to go down that path and try to achieve. Oh, I love that. Um, swimming is such a demanding sport. You know, it's all those hours of staring at a black line at the bottom of a pool. You know, I think Bob Bowman cl claims that Michael Phelps uh, trained every day for four years, you know, day in, day out. Um, and you obviously been a swimmer yourself in your past life as an athlete. So you understand the mindset a little bit. What would you say are some of the main mental skills that are useful for a swimmer who is trying to compete at the highest level? Ooh. You know, I, I've always been mostly involved in elite, in endurance sports, uh, yes. triathlon, swimming, uh, cycling, but I've also worked with, uh, with team sports. I've worked in professional football. I've worked in elite water polo as well. And I think you need mental toughness in both areas, but the requirements are, are quite different. And in fact, some of the water polo players that I've that I've worked with in the in the past Olympic cycle, and these girls are um, European champion, silver medalists at the world champs, and silver medalists at the Olympics now in Tokyo, only beaten by by the USA. Uh, they say a lot of them say we couldn't do what endurance athletes do. Because most athletes in team sports, they like to have fun. And there is a reason why you say, I play water polo, I play football, I play basketball, but you don't say I play cycling, I play swimming, or I play marathon running. Uh, so the, the, this play thing, I think, has very serious implications. Because it, it's like kids having fun. I'm not saying that an elite uh, triathlete doesn't love training or doesn't enjoy riding or doesn't enjoy when, when they have a good run, but they don't perceive the, the, the training as, as fun and, and, and play, whereas in team sports, they do perceive that. So I think in endurance sports, you need that mental toughness and the other word that I always um, focus on is consistency. I've seen athletes who are not physiologically extraordinary be extremely successful simply because they are consistent. 
you know, you need to be there day in, day out, day in, day out, and you need to put in the hours. I've seen many physiologically superior athletes fail from a performance point of view because of a lack of consistency. And those athletes who have the commitment to be consistent for a long period of time, irrespective of what their physical and physiological qualities might be, they are in the path to become successful at the uh, competition level, because that consistency is, is, is mandatory. It's mandatory for good performance. It's mandatory for avoiding injuries. And once you start getting injured, the concept of consistency itself, it disappears because now you can train, now you can train, now you are in rehab, now you can go back to training and then you get injured again. One of the things I'm most proud of my path as a coach with uh, two particular triathletes is that one of them over 10 years of elite triathlon had three injuries. If you follow triathlon, you know that many triathletes are injured three times in a season. These guys were injured three times over a 10-year career with uh, shin splints and a couple of episodes of low back pain. And the other one had uh, plantar fasciitis and a knee fat pad impingement in nine years of elite triathlon. So that's one of the things I'm most proud of. And I think that is the result of good planning, good recovery at the micro, the meso, and the macro level. So between sessions, between weeks, between training blocks, and between seasons, but also a result of consistency. I love that. It's almost a, a six C, Jim, if we put character um, and consistency with the other four Cs. Jim, as um, as we were hearing that that great story of both, you know, injury mitigation and dedication at the highest level and kind of the notion of investing rather than sacrificing, what was bubbling up for you? Yeah, I mean, you need to have both feet in, obviously. Um, and uh, Phil and I like to joke that with clients, um, you know, I'll ask them their commitment level um, on a one to 10 scale in terms of being the very best they can be. And if they, the response is anything less than 10 out of 10, uh, what I'll say to them is, hey, that's great, but come back to me when it is a 10 out of 10. <laughs> and so, because, you know, you're not going to get there uh, wherever you want to go unless you're all in and, um, and, and willing to make that commitment. And, and when an athlete does tell me that they're a 10 out of 10 in terms of their commitment, I'll ask them if they're coaches and they're sports scientists and, you know, and, and their teammates would agree with that. And uh, a lot of times, you know, if the response is, I don't know, then it probably isn't a 10 out of 10. So I think we all need to take, you know, have the courage to really put both feet in and go after what we want most in life. Um, injuries is a, is a big part of, of the work that I've done. Um, and uh, you'd put me out of business if, uh, if uh, all the athletes that I work with hardly ever got injured because, you know, that's a, a great time to work on the mental game or, or, you know, take good care of oneself 
while they get that break from their sport so that they can come back hopefully even stronger. Uh, but that also reminds me of the topic of pain and pain management. And as you said, uh, you know, swimming and cycling, you know, a lot of endurance sports are, are a suffer fest. Um, what are your thoughts about pain management and any ideas or tips that might help our listeners? Well, first of all, behind that idea of uh, 10 out of 10 commitment, I, I've seen an, an elite world-class coach tell an athlete face-to-face, when you are committed at 100%, I'll be committed at 100%. And this came after the athlete asked him to organize something for, for him. He said, he told the coach, uh, could you organize a trip uh, somewhere for a competition? And he said, no. Uh, how come? What do you mean? No. I said, no. When you are 100% committed, I'll be 100% committed. And you are, at the moment, you are only 75%. So that extra 25% from me would involve organizing your trip. But I'm not going to organize your trip because that's the extra 25% that you are not putting in. So I'm not going to put it in either. Um, and regarding your, your question about pain management, um, I've heard athletes saying, uh, if I go to a competition and nothing hurts, something is wrong. And I tried to convince her that that approach was wrong. I think if things are going well, if the training plan is well done, well designed, injury prevention is included as part of the entire training program, there is no reason why athletes should be in pain or they should be uh, constantly managing pain and managing little uh, injuries here and there. Um, I, I think that an athlete that uh, is 100% healthy is an athlete who has way more chances of succeeding in competition. Of course, there is pain involved in training and there is pain involved in competition, not necessarily related to, to injury. And according to uh, the sport psychologists I've been, I've been working with, and, and one of them wrote a, a really good chapter about uh, sport psychology for endurance, in my book, Endurance Training, Science and Practice, uh, those who are more elite focus on internal feelings when things get tough. Um, you have the possibility of externalizing that pain or the possibility of internalizing that pain. And apparently those who are more successful, they are able to to internalize that, that pain and, and reflect on why they are feeling that pain and what is going on. And that allows them to stay in the moment, to be more focused on the task at hand, and therefore they become more successful. And I remember uh, this, this triathlete that I, that I coached for 10 years to world championships, et cetera, saying, even in Ironman triathlon, where, triathlon, when you are competing for eight hours, if you lose focus for a couple of minutes, the race might be gone. Yes, sometimes you might come back into the race, but as hard as it might seem, he needed to be focused, completely focused on what was going on every single minute of the race, because 
if you started thinking about something else or, or, or having a song in your head, oh, because this is so long that I need to think about something else, suddenly voom, the race was gone. The leaders were gone and, and you were out of the race and you could never catch up again. So I think being into what's going on for the duration of the training session or for the duration of the event is very, very important for, uh, for elite performance. Yeah, I love that. I love the different challenges mindset-wise that we worked with a couple of rodeo teams and with rodeo, you know, um, probably like bullfighting as well, that they say, you know, the average duration is 12 seconds or something like that. So that's at the other end of the scale to what you're talking about. So yeah, that's, um, that's pretty interesting of how you can, and partly that becomes a case of mental energy management then, both for the bull rider and for the, the triathlete at the other end of the scale. How do you manage your mental resources as well as your physical resources, whether it's 12 seconds or it's eight hours or it's anywhere in between? Yeah, you can ask uh, uh, Usain Bolt about it, you know, how, how do you manage uh, those 10 seconds or those 19 seconds of competition after months and months of training? Uh, it's very different, but it's also very similar. You have to stay into it for the, for the entire duration of the event. And in this case, if you are out of it for a, for a, a fraction of a second, you are out of it. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so you mentioned some of your, your experience in what I would call football, what Americans would call probably soccer. Um, can you talk to us about Bilbao and some of the other teams you've worked with and, and have maybe how you've seen the demands of the game progress over the course of your career? Hmm. Well, when I worked at Athletic Bilbao, I was uh, the head of research and development at the academy. So my involvement with the professional team um, was minor. I was mostly working with the, uh, with the development of young players. But this is particularly important in, in a club like Athletic Club Bilbao because we have the unique philosophy of only working with Basque players. So if you want to play for Athletic Bilbao, you have to be either born or developed as a player in the Basque country. And that means that we cannot go and hire someone from... Africa or South America or another European country or even from Spain. Our players are either born or developed in the Basque country. Therefore, there is a huge reliance on developing your own players. And the academy work was extremely, extremely important. And that means that you cannot leave kids behind. You have to make sure that every potential player uh, that goes through your academy becomes a player. It is clear that not everyone is going to end up playing in the, in the first team, but you have to make sure that those who have the potential to end up playing in the first team at some point in time um, are not lost or are not, are not overseen. You, you need to have a, a very good eye uh, you need to be able to identify those players really well because otherwise you run out of uh, potential players because the population from which you need to take those players is, is rather small. Um, in that sense, it's a unique philosophy. Uh, but 
I will also say that it's a philosophy that allows the club to remain competitive. There are only three teams in the Spanish uh, football league that have never been relegated to the second division. And they are Real Madrid, probably historically the best football club in the world. Barcelona, another one of the best football clubs in the world. And Athletic Bilbao. And in the case of Athletic Bilbao, it is not because the club can go out and hire the best players in the world, but because there is this sense of belonging. And I think the sense of belonging can go a very, very long way when things get tough. In other clubs, when, th when, th when things get tough, players call their manager and they say, hey, um, I think we're going to get relegated. Uh, start looking for another team for next season because I don't want to play in the second division. So they jump out of the boat. At Athletic Bilbao, nobody wants to be remembered as a member of the team that for the first time in 130 years was relegated to the second division. So when things get tough, everyone pulls in the same direction to make sure that that doesn't happen. So from that point of view, uh, I think the sense of belonging in the club is extremely, extremely important. And it is, it is on the one hand, this philosophy of only playing with, with local players is a limitation, but on the other hand, I think it's a, it's a gift. It's a real gift. Uh, the evolution of the game has been very clear over the past few years. If you look at footing, video footage uh, from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, your perception is like they were playing in, a slow, in a slow motion. You feel that the footage you are watching is uh, football in slow motion compared to the way the, the game is played today. And that has huge implications in terms of the athleticism of the players. And of course, that athleticism has to be uh, seeked for in your selection of players, and it has to be nurtured in your, in your training programs. So the focus of your training uh, has probably shifted over the past couple of decades towards faster, stronger players rather than more endurance players. Uh, and, and some players who were extremely good 20 years ago could not succeed in today's football simply because they were a little bit too slow in their decision-making process. That was good enough back then. But if, if you translate it or if you transported those players uh, to today's football, they would be lacking that half of a second to make a decision and they wouldn't be good enough. So I think the speed of the game uh, and the power of the players has increased a lot in the past few years. Very interesting. How would you say the European academy systems, both in football, rugby and other sports, maybe differs from the approach in the USA a little bit or maybe a lot? Well, I think the, the, the approach in the USA uh, in most sports is extremely reliant on the fantastic college sports system that you have over there. Uh, USA Olympics would be absolutely nothing without the college system. That's, that's my opinion. The success of 
U.S. Olympic teams uh, in Olympic sports is, I would say, at 90% due to the fantastic college sports systems that you have in place. I don't think uh, your sports science is any better than the sports science that we might have in Europe. I don't think the, I don't think the support that Olympic athletes get is any better than the support they get over here in Europe, but you have the advantage of the, of the college sports system. Therefore, uh, the European system is very, very different in, in that sense. And the football academies, uh, even if their first teams don't rely a lot on players developed in their own academies, they have understood that every time they sell a player to a different club, they have already sufficient money to finance their own academy for several years. So if, uh, let's say, Barcelona develops a player who might not be good enough to play in the first team of Barcelona, but is good enough to be sold to another first division team in Spain or in the UK or in France or in Italy or in Germany, the income that they get simply from selling that one player is often enough to pay for the entire cost of the academy for a year, two years, or three years. So many clubs nowadays understand the need of developing a good academy as an investment. Again, the word investment <laughs> appears in this, in this uh, instance in the, in the financial sense. So whether you work on your academy as a way to develop your own players for your own first team, or whether you focus on selling those players for the, for the financial well-being of the club, a lot of the teams have been uh, understood the need for, uh, for that good work in the, at the academy level. No, I love that. Um, in the U.S., now... I'll say this with a caveat. You can have the Williams sisters. You can have Tiger Woods. You can have these exceptional athletes who specialize very young and where the parents are very involved and drive them down this road from the time they're five years old to become, with Tiger, the best golfer ever or with the Williams sisters, certainly the best duo ever and arguably Serena, you know, the best individual player ever. Um but that can also lead to baseball players getting Tommy John surgery at age 13 or 14 because they have repetitive strain injuries because they've been throwing fastballs as fast as the most adults from the time they were knee high. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about in Europe, the specialization versus what David Epstein calls having a good range, a range of exposure to different sports, to different activities. And one example he gave is Roger Federer, but um, could you maybe give us another example or, or just your experience with specialization, early specialization versus range? Well, that's a classic debate. Uh, early specialization versus uh, sampling multiple sports and, and in my, my opinion, and I've expressed this opinion uh, in several lectures and presentations, et cetera, and not everyone needs to agree with me, is that 
the studies that show that early specialization uh, is inferior to uh, early sampling of multiple sports, etc. Those studies often come from Anglo-Saxon countries in which one sport does not really dominate the, the sporting world. What I mean by this is that in the US, uh, you have professional football, which is very, very strong, but you also have professional basketball, which is very, very strong. And you also have professional baseball, which is extremely strong. And, and some athletes even play both in high school or they, they might play at different points during the school year, they might play different sports and they might be successful in all of them. But that is because not one sport is so dominant that the competition is extremely uh, difficult. If you take South American countries, football is king. If you take most European countries, football is king. If you try to become a top level professional soccer player in Europe or in South America, and you only start playing soccer at the age of 13, forget it. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen because the competition is fierce. The competition is extreme and it comes from everywhere in the world. Whereas in those other sports, uh, let's call it Australian rules football in Australia, which is another country where that research come from, comes from. In Australia, there is a widespread um, dedication to different sports. Cricket is very popular. Uh, AFL, Australian rules football is very popular. Uh, rugby union is quite popular. Rugby, rugby league is quite popular. So there is not a single sport that is so dominant as soccer is in Europe and South America. And that is why I think for some sports, unless you do early specialization, forget it, you're never gonna make it. In those countries where there is not such a domination from a single sport, maybe uh, sampling different sports allows you sufficient time to then go and specialize in, 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 a, in one particular sport. And all the movement skills that you have learned from, from those multiple sports are going to be beneficial for your future performance in one sport. But that said, I also think that you can have very, very rich early specialization approach to your sport. Playing only football or soccer doesn't mean that your soccer training is poor from a movement variety and moral development of the athlete point of view. You can focus on soccer and do an extremely rich variety of exercises in your training that would somehow be similar to sampling different sports at different uh, ages in your development process. So only, only when you have a very narrow view of early specialization, I think it might be detrimental. No, I love you that. Might, you might specialize early, but having the knowledge 
about how to best develop the athletic ability and the athletic qualities of your athletes, I don't think it should be a problem. Yeah. So are you saying that sometimes these these injuries that have been attributed to repetitive strain or to specialization itself, that specialization isn't the issue. It's, it's how and when the specialization occurs and maybe the coaching or lack thereof, or the programming or lack thereof, or maybe even game management. Let's say the baseball pitcher is 14. Maybe he's playing on his high school team. He's playing on a regional team. He's playing on a state team. He's trying out for, for scouts. And so could it be too much, just too much volume within the specialization or could there be other issues there that lead to this elbow being useless at age 14 or this shoulder? Yeah, that's my view. That's my view. You can, you can become a very, very good baseball pitcher uh, at the age of 20 and you might limit the, the number of throws throughout your developing career uh, to make sure that you get there at the right time with the right amount of, of throws and with the right amount of training and with the right amount of injury prevention training and uh, with the right amount of alternative training to simple to simply pitch and pitch and pitch. Uh, and the same applies to, to cricket uh, in, in, in the UK or in Australia or in India or in Pakistan. And, 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 and to many other sports in which that uh, high intensity, repetitive um, uh, action might end up in, a, in an injury. So I think with the right type of training and with the right time of, of long-term planning, you might specialize early without necessarily implying that you are increasing the risk of injury yeah so could it be partly a problem that well if more is better than a lot more is even better so volume is turned to 10 all the time intensity density collision slash contact if they're all turned up to 10 from a time a kid is a kid <laughs> is that partly the problem sometimes i think it, i think it might be the problem you know, uh, parents thinking, oh, I, I, I want my, my kid to be a, a baseball pitcher because I am a frustrated base, <laughs> baseball pitcher. I never made it, so I'm going to make sure that, that, that my son makes it. And, uh, and they make them throw and throw and throw. I'm sorry, pitch and pitch and pitch. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and then they have to pitch in school and then they have to pitch in high school and then they have to pitch, as you said, with the local team, with the regional team, with the uh, with the national team, and in the end, it's uh, it's too much of what could be a good thing. Uh, so you need you need a, an integral plan for the development of that athlete uh, up to the uh, to the professional ranks. No, I love that. Um, and, Jim, and who takes care of that? Who takes care of that uh, general plan? For the development of uh, of the athlete, is it the is it the parents? Is it the, the coach of one of the teams? Is it the, the, the high school coach? Is it the college coach? You know, they only see that they have a player that they have to use. You need someone to oversee the uh, the overall development of that athlete, and that's something that we did, in my opinion, very well at Athletic Bilbao. We had people who could oversee the progression of the players not within a season but over their entire uh, 
uh, development process towards the professional ranks. No, so it's partly a matter of playing the long game and kind of, as you said about consistency, little and often. Yeah, and, and con- patience and mm-hmm. patience as well. Yeah, talk to you us a bit. Me? Talk to us a bit yeah. more about about patience, about that word, and how you've seen that applied well and maybe not applied so well. Well, there are many studies in different sports indicating that uh, uh, being a, a, a junior world champion in athletics, a junior world champion in swimming, a junior world champion in, in, in tennis does not necessarily uh, automatically translate into being a world champion in swimming, in, in athletics, or, or in tennis, or, or in basketball. There are cases, of course, of athletes who were very early on very successful internationally, but there are many, many cases of athletes who simply disappear after being uh, champions in the in the junior ranks. And it might be due to overexposure, it might be due to uh, burnout uh, mentally, it might be due to injuries because of that um, early specialization, but not well done, early specialization from my point of view. So, I think that's a lack of patience. You know, some countries are very successful in swimming at the junior level, and then there is nothing at the at the senior level. That might be because of this lack of patience, because of uh, the search for immediate success. Sometimes it might be the ego of junior coaches saying, I'm going to get the best out of this athlete while this athlete is in my hands because I know that athlete will later on be taken away from me to go to a national training center and, mm-hmm. or go to a, to a higher profile coach. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to prove how good a coach I am and I want my junior athlete to be a junior world champion. So that might be a factor. Instead of that coach thinking uh, long-term about the, the what is best for that particular athlete in the long-term. No, I and love having patience And mm-hmm. having patience for that athlete to develop over time, even if the final success uh, is under the supervision of a different coach. But they should be able to see that as their own success. Yeah, somebody to become Olympic champion in in six years' time uh, is also partly because of me. So that success belongs to me too. So they they need to understand that. But that that requires a lot of uh, perspective from the part of uh, junior development coaches. Yeah, Jim, Jim, can you think of some examples in your work in sports psychology and counseling where patience or impatience have played a role in the outcome in the long term? Well, I think in general, it's, uh, you know, with everything, it's uh, long-term success and happiness is always way more important than short-term success and happiness. And so I think uh, patience is is really important as well as persistence. Um, And in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of you know, maybe prodigies or superstars when they're young that don't necessarily, you know, that doesn't always translate to when they get older. 
I think a big part of that is also competitiveness. Uh, for example, my wife loves to run, but she doesn't have a competitive bone in her body, you know? So, you know, she does it just for the, the intrinsic joy of running. And uh, I've worked with a lot of athletes and, you know, and, and, you know, more female athletes that said, you know, I love my sport. I love being around, you know, my teammates, but you know, it doesn't drive me, you know, really to, uh, you know, necessarily be on top of the podium. Um, and so we're differentiating team sports from individual sports, but some athletes just don't, aren't competitive. They have all the physical tools, but, you know, mentally it's not their, you know, it's not their jam, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I think it's really fascinating in terms of, uh, the patience part that you said, um, that, you know, if we're always in a rush to get somewhere, um, uh, you know, we'll never get there. A few days ago, Arsenal Football Club signed a four-year-old. Four. That's crazy. What what message is that sending to to children? And not to children, because that kid is probably just having fun, but he's good at it. But basically, the parents. That's mm -hmm. the problem. Absolutely. When, when I when I worked at, a, at Athletic Bilbao, there was a uh, a poll among parents. So you would show parents of academy players the statistics of what percentage of academy players made it to the first team. You showed them the numbers. You told them only, I don't remember exactly the numbers, but you told them, for example, only 8% um, of players in the academy end up playing in the first team. And after showing them the numbers over the years, you ask the parents, do you think your child will play in the first team? 80% said yes. After being given the numbers indicating that only 8% <laughs> would make it to the professional ranks. So sometimes the problem is not the athlete. Sometimes the, pro the problem is the the athlete's environment and, and in particular, the, the parents of the athletes. Well, it's really interesting in American football, um, when you reach high school, um, you get graded, colleges grade you in terms of the stars, you know, like in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of potential um, and ability. And so you might be a five-star, four-star, three-star, two-star, you know, and um, it's interesting when you look at the best teams in the NFL and, and across the NFL, a lot of teams are filled with former two, three, you know, uh, star players. Um, you look at Tom Brady, you know, maybe the greatest American football player ever. He was, I think, a two or a three star recruit coming out of high school. Mm -hmm. um, and then when the Patriots won a bunch of the Super Bowls, they had a bunch of two, three and, you know, two and three star players which shows that, you know, they weren't always the best when they were younger. And so I think what ends up happening is they have to find a way with work ethic and mindset and, 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 you know, and, and good teamwork and those kind of things to, 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 you know, kind of hang in there. Um, and then that becomes when things get harder, they're able to adjust and adapt and compensate and hang in there and, and get the job done. Whereas others, I've worked with a lot of uh, college athletes that, were superstars in high school and they never had a developmental toughness because they didn't need it. They were so much better. But then when, you know, eventually you're going to get to a point where everyone's pretty good and it's those intangibles that can make a huge difference. But, um, but switching gears real quick, um, you know, as a sports physiologist, uh, triathlon and swimming coach, 
And then, you know, uh, associate editor for the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, among many other hats that you wear. Um, you know, there's the saying that you can't, uh, you know, that, that you can't pour from, a, from an empty cup. So how do you fill your cup with all the things that you have going on to take care of yourself? And also just any advice in terms of, you know, maybe, you know, just time management or things that you do to help you be so productive? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question because when people see my, uh, my, my curriculum, they think that I don't sleep and I only work all day. But uh, many years ago, I understood how my brain works and I've managed to follow that. And I've reached a very good balance between, between work and, and leisure. Um, for instance, yesterday it was my birthday. So I said, well, it's my birthday. I worked for a couple hours in the morning. I looked at the surf forecast and the waves were good. So I thought I'm off to the coast and, uh, and I spent the afternoon surfing. Um, and I train every day. So every single day at around 7 p.m. or so, I go to my sports club. And if somebody asks me, uh, oh, can we have a meeting at seven? I said, no, I'm busy. And I don't need to explain why I'm busy. I don't need to say I'm, I'm busy because I'm going swimming or I'm going to do weights or I'm going to run or I'm going to, um, uh, to cycle. I am busy. So training for me every day is mandatory because I know when I train, I could say exercise, but I like to call it train. <laughs> uh, my brain works much better. And when I take time off, my brain works much better. So sometimes I'm able to uh, be super, super focused on, on a task until I finish it. Or if I feel that I cannot finish it because my mental state is not good enough, I leave that task, I go away, I do something else, and that something else might be not opening my, not, not, not turning on my computer for three days and go cycling. And then when I come back, suddenly, boom, there it is. And I can really focus on the task and finish it off. So I think I've, I've managed to, to reach a really good balance in my life between uh, work and and mostly exercise and cinema. I'm passionate about cinema. Um, so today I'm going to a cine forum at, uh, at uh, 7.30. And because I want to go to that film, I will do some less exercise. So I'll go to my club and I'll swim for 20 minutes and then I'll go to the cinema. I ride my bicycle every day. Um, and then there is another thing. It's that I love what I do for work. So I, I earn a living having fun. It, I, I couldn't tell you it's my hobby, but it's almost my hobby to, to be a sports physiologist. Um, and when you do something that you love, it's so much easier to... Um, to have a, a good balance and, and, a, and a healthy lifestyle. So yes, I, I try to have fun when I work and I do have fun when I work, but I also have a lot of fun when, I, when I'm not at, 
at work. So that, that's how I reach that good balance. Yeah, I love that having a beautiful obsession with your craft um, and that helps you to have a beautiful life. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> no, I love that. Well, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and happy birthday for yesterday. Um, I wish we could have, I could have got the old paddleboard out there if it wasn't too uh, too big. Usually I'm used to a flat lake, <laughs> but um, yeah, that would have been, that would be a lot of fun to, to do that with you sometime. Yep. And if you're uh, four you. years old and you're listening to this, uh, you know, take your time. Be yeah, patient. you've signed, signed for, for Arsenal FC in the Premier League, so you're doing pretty well. You're checking off the goals. <laughs> but um, yeah, learn to love your, your craft and to, and to exercise patience. <laughs> yeah. You have a long life ahead of you. So. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you for so the invitation, much. guys. No, I really, really appreciate you. And um, yeah, you have such a generous spirit about you. And uh, yeah, thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.